All right. This is the Guidehouse Transportation Insights podcast for uh, December 1st, 2021. Uh, we're here again with the whole team, Sam Abul Samad, uh, and I'm joined by uh, Christian Albertson, Saji Evbanada, Scott Shepard, and Ryan Citron uh, to talk about what's going on in our sectors of the world that we're covering uh, for Guidehouse Insights. So why don't we start with Saji this week? Saji, what, what have you got going on? Hi there. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought what was interesting is um, 7-Eleven, the, um, the global convenience store chain. So they recently announced um, that they're starting a, a couple of trials of automated delivery bot services, um, both in the US and in uh, Korea. Um, so firstly, in, in South Korea, in, in Seoul, um, from today, actually, um, 7-Eleven have started a, um, a delivery bot service, a sidewalk delivery bot service, um, making deliveries from um, a 7-Eleven convenience store, which is in an in a apartment complex um, in a, a central Seoul district, um, I, I believe somewhere in, in the Gangnam area. Um, so this delivery bot is called, it's, it's called the Newbie. Um, it, it, it travels just like other sidewalk, uh, sidewalk delivery bots at uh, around walking pace. Um, it can carry loads of around uh, 25 kilos and, makes, and makes deliveries within uh, 100 meters um, of, of the uh, convenience store. Um, so the bot itself has been de- developed by Newbility. Um, so they're a Korean-based um, robotics and AI startup. Um, the bot itself, the newbie, it's... Um, it has a vision-based sensors, um, which enables it to um, avoid obstacles um, and also has GPS sensors and, and a few other sensors. Um, and I think the plans are from 7-Eleven and Nubility is to, um, uh, as, as they develop this, uh, this pilot or this trial, um, expand the service radius to around 300 meters. Um, and also they'll be increasing the number of bots and, and stores that they're delivering from. Um, the, um, the the actual place where um, the the bots will be based is within an, uh, an apartment complex as I mentioned, and I think that's important in, in somewhere like Seoul, where a high pro- uh, proportion of people live within apartment complexes, um, and and also these types of complexes provide like a safe uh, environment for uh, automated bots to be making uh, deliveries. Um, at the moment, the bots um, they're not capable of crossing roads yet by themselves, so um, I think for now, uh, apartment complexes or these types of campuses would be the, the ideal delivery uh, environment. Um, so essentially, the, the customers who are living in the apartment complex can order from um, the, um, the 7-Eleven delivery food app, um, and uh, the bots will deliver the, uh, the goods to outside the apartment, and, and the customer will have to go outside the building to, um, to unlock the, the vehicle and collect their their, their order. Um, some other uh, competitors in uh, South Korea had been working with um, elevator companies and with um, apartments to try and develop a system so that is a full door-to-door service. Um, but at the moment, this is just purely going to be um, um, a delivery to the, to the entrance of the uh, apartment building. Um, the, uh, the cost of deliveries is supposed to be comparable with that uh, at the moment or c- uh, comparable with a human delivery. Um, which I think is around uh, $2.50 in their local currency. Um, and uh, 7-Eleven and Nubility in particular have been um, quite clear in 
and sharing some ideas for some potential business models for this. So they're, they're quite keen to commercialize the service. So um, they're looking at potential a, a rental model um, where the, um, the, the the customer or the, uh, the the convenience store or supermarket, which is going to be um, providing the delivery, would pay um, newbie or newbility um, a monthly fee of around $450 a month. Um, but also they're also considering a... Um, a pay by a pay by delivery model where um, the customers will be paying around one dollar seventy per delivery. So um, at the moment, um, yeah, they they're looking to um, obviously gain some learnings from the, from this pilot and expand the the scale the scale of of this of this service. Um, they, um, I guess, as in Seven Eleven, they've also recently announced their plans to um, to introduce a drone delivery service as well with um, Pablo Air, who is a local um, Korean drone startup as well. So, um, so 7-Eleven certainly have plans to, to try and um, scale up their um, automated delivery services in Korea. Um, but at the same time, they've also launched um, a delivery service uh, that they're looking to pilot in California. Um, so that's also starting today, apparently, in Mountain View. Um, and uh, in this case, um, customers who, who live within um, uh, a suitable radius of the 7-Eleven store, um, they'll be able to make their, place their orders using the 7-Eleven app, um, and the deliveries will be made this time by... Um, so, so actually, in, in California, um, uh, 7-Eleven is partnering with Neuro um, to provide the vehicles. Um, so for now, at least, um, the vehicles will actually be Toyota Priuses um, with uh, Neuro's self-driving stack uh, installed. Um, there will be a safety driver um, present for deliveries. Um, but eventually, I think the plan is for Neuro to um, to start to use their R2 uh, road-going delivery bots. Um, so yeah, delivery should be yeah within a, a suitable radius. It's not not really clear what that is, but um, typically with, within a, a couple of miles, I, I presume. And um, just like in in um, uh, South Korea, I think um, you know, Neuro, I think, have probably had some kind of uh, regulatory hurdles to, to try and get approvals for for launching such a service, but. Um, I, I suspect that's why they're probably going with the Toyota Priuses um, to start with rather than with the, um, the R2 um, road-going delivery bots. So, um, so yeah, so I thought that was, that was an interesting couple of announcements from uh, 7-Eleven, um, and they're looking to really um, yeah, increase, increase automation of their delivery services. Hey, Sashi, I was um, curious for the deployments in uh, Korea. You kind of mentioned that um, the bots can't really cross the streets yet. And so I guess, yeah. like, how do they get to the apartment co- complex from 7-Eleven if they can't cross streets at this point, I guess? Is- yeah, so I, I believe the, um, the 7-Eleven is within the complex. Um, okay. So that seems to be like a, a fairly common format for apartment complexes in, in, in Seoul. So... It's not just the, the apartment buildings, but they will have some shops and perhaps some restaurants there as well. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that because yeah, I'm familiar, particularly in like Toronto, there's a lot of condo buildings where there might be like a 7-Eleven or a store at the, the first level. Uh, but so basically the delivery bots are just carrying it from the store to like the lobby of the apartment or condo building. It's super short distance. Yeah, yeah that's right. And um, 
do you see that as like worthwhile for consumers? Because like they're not really saving a lot of hassle, are they? Because either they just walk into the store and grab it, or I guess it maybe saves a couple of minutes if it's a really busy store or something. But yeah, no, I, th- I think that's an important point that um, you know the the customer still has to go down the elevator and get out of their building to unlock the the, the vehicle and get their goods. So eighty uh, percent of the same thing, anyway. Possibly, yeah, and, and maybe it's that initial effort of just getting out of your house, uh, which would yeah. probably put customers off. But there has been a lot of works. Um, so one of the uh, in in this area, so um, in Korea uh, in particular, so um, it was um, the Wuwa Bros, uh, Wuwa Brothers, um, who had also developed a, um, a delivery bot and did a very similar service in another apartment complex. So they were working with Hyundai to um, develop, uh, so Hyundai um, elevators, um, develop a system so that the vehicle, the vehicles could actually have some kind of um, security uh, pass to enter the buildings and then was able to interact with the lift, with the elevators, um, and then navigate itself within the uh, apartment block itself. So it's an actual door-to-door service. So um, I understand that that, that that work is still ongoing, and um, I, I see that as being um, probably, um, yeah, a, a big boost for for customers in, in, in Seoul in particular. Yeah, here here in Ann Arbor, um, Yandex has been piloting a service <clears throat> using their uh, their rover delivery bot. Uh, they started last March with one of the uh, one of the delis in downtown Ann Arbor. Uh, that's in the middle of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the University of Michigan uh, central campus area, and that they have a, a delivery radius of about two miles. I saw that uh, a demo of it uh, last spring when they uh, after they first started, and the rover is able to navigate you know across streets and over curbs things like that. It's a little six wheeled uh, bot. Um, and as I said, it's, it's about a two mile delivery radius from, from the restaurant. It doesn't go into, you know, inside the buildings, but it does, um, you know, it'll go up to the door. So either to dorm, you know, dormitories on the campus or to other university buildings or, or even anyone else that lives in that area or works in that area. It doesn't have to be associated with the, the university. Uh, they they provide that that service. Uh, I'm curious for particularly for the 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 pilot in Korea. Um, what is the plan as far as who actually owns the vehicles and kind of what the business model is? Does the company that's making the bot well, do they plan to operate this fleet of delivery vehicles and do essentially delivery as a service? Or you mentioned um, you know renting the bots to stores. You know, would the store have to, you know, have their own dedicated bot uh, that they use? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, so I, th- I think the implication is that um, um, the um, probably the larger stores, the larger groceries, or, or the larger convenience stores would probably have some kind of a rental model where they'll rent a, one or more bots. Um, but I think that um, uh, perhaps. Um, um, the the bot companies are probably looking to also target the smaller retailers, the smaller food companies. Um, so, um, so Newbility did mention um, the, um, the the one dollar seventy per delivery model. So, the, the delivery is a service model. So, uh, probably to suit those smaller uh, premises, which probably can't invest it 
we don't want to, p- to spend too much upfront in terms of a, of a monthly rental when they want to test out the service. Um, so I, I, I see that, yeah, probably a, a dual pronged uh, approach there. And um, I think another thing which I which I read was um, yeah, probably one of the opportunities that um, Nubility have, have identified in in Korea is that um, the cost of labor is going up. And so um, a lot of the convenience stores, which are probably the most popular way for people to buy uh, groceries in, in a city like Seoul, um, they're struggling to be able to, to stay open 24 hours, which, is, which has been the norm up to now um, because of the rising uh, labor costs. So I think that um, they're probably identifying convenience stores as, as potential customers who'll be looking to reduce their um, uh, their labor costs, their employee costs um, by, um, by, by taking advantage of delivery bots. Yeah, especially you know for for smaller businesses, you know, having some sort of service model where they don't have to uh, either own or rent their own bot, you know, um, would be I think preferable just because of the the utilization challenge for a smaller business. You know, if if you know multiple, you know, eight to ten smaller businesses were all using the same bot, you could have pretty high utilization of the bot. Um, as opposed to, for example, a larger grocery store, you know, could have its own uh, fleet of bots, you know, if they, if they had a lot of people requesting deliveries. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Christian, what's going on in the skies these days, this week? Well, we got a really interesting one. We're about to make history here at about uh, 1 p.m. Central Standard Time today. Um, United Airlines Flight 2701, which is a uh, fairly new brand, uh, 737-8, is going to be taking off from Chicago for an hour and 41-minute flight, give or take. And one of the engines on this aircraft will be running on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Now, that's not really history. The, the history part of it is they're going to be flying with passengers, with passengers on board. So this will be the first with passengers on board. They ran some uh, tests in October uh, without passengers. Aircraft did just fine. Um, So one of the engines will be running on your standard jet fuel. The other one will be on pure SAF. So, um, which is really interesting because they're they're This is the next step into getting the FAA and EASA and other other regulatory bodies to say, okay, you can you can bump it up from fifty percent SAF to eighty percent, seventy five percent, or whatever, or possibly up to a hundred percent SAF to fly your aircraft on instead of just the fifty fifty blend that they allow at the moment. Um, the the ones they're flying today, um, these come from a company called World Energy. The fuel they're using today. It's made from fats, cooking oils, and grease. And uh, when it's uh, when it's all said and done, it's about eighty percent fewer emissions than you would from a standard jet fuel. So it's it's uh, the petroleum part of this that they would normally use instead of the petroleum-based products. They're using um, plant sugars to finalize this whole fuel concoction. And make it so it's uh, it'll burn in the aircraft engines just fine. Um, 
Uh, Rolls-Royce uh, for a while has been uh, building all of their engines to run on 100% SAF. It's just the governments that aren't allowing them to do it. Um, other companies, uh, I believe Pratt & Whitney has one and uh, GE has them as well, that'll run on 100% SAF. It's just uh, a safety-based thing. They don't want to switch to switch to SAF right away, as well as the simple fact of it, if you took all of our SAF producers out there and combined all of the SAF they had, they could make today, that's about 0.1% of the fuel that would be needed to fly every aircraft in the world on SAF. So, so that's our next step is getting it. Now that we get it, uh, if we can get it approved, we got the passengers approved it. Now we got to have to find enough, a way to make enough SAF to keep everybody flying. Question for you. Um, you know, when, when we started using E85 in flex fuel internal combustion piston engines in vehicles, one of the things to use high concentrations of ethanol, they had to make some changes to the engines um, to uh, address the, the problems of corrosion because ethanol has an affinity for water. Uh, so they, want, they needed to make, change some of the materials and fuel lines and injectors and so on, as well as hardening valve seats because of the, the different lubrication properties of the fuel. Um, to, for, you know, turbine engines are obviously a very different uh, kind of technology from a piston engine. Um, and one of the beauties of turbine engines is you can run them on basically anything that'll burn. Um, but what, what sorts of changes need to be done to what, if any changes need to be done to accommodate a, a, a SAF fuel in a jet engine for an aircraft? No, that, that's actually the beauty of it. It's really not much at all. There's, um, it's, it's in the fuel itself, not in the engine. Um, you know, the the way the SAF has been and been made is it has to be it have to, has to have the exact same effects on the engine that a standard fuel would. So everything they've done, they formulated the fuel to act exactly the same on the engine as well as you know burning the exact same, the fuel po uh, freezing point being the exact same. Everything has to be exactly the same as standard fuel before they can use it. It's a drop-in fuel, meaning it's 100% compatible. The biggest problem is the skeptics saying, okay, well, you know, you can't fly an airplane on bacon grease. And they won't allow that, that full blend or full 100% SAF. They have to have it blended just in case. But all SAF is just drop-in. So it's it, there is no uh, nothing that, that, that needs to be changed. Rolls Royce, um, when I worked for them years ago, they were already working on the engines that would burn anything. Um, there's there's uh, the aircraft engines. You're right. You can throw anything in them. You can throw in pure kerosene, and they'll, they'll as long as that thing will light off, it'll continue to burn. It may not be as efficient. It may smoke, but it's still going to work. Do you see the um, the the I guess the strategy for getting SAF involved in in flights, as is the case here, is more about kind of overcoming or kind of an awareness move. Uh, in that you mentioned earlier, uh, there's that sort of perception of you can't fly a plane on bacon grease. 
and needing to get over that hump that might have developed from the uh, sort of early generations of biodiesels, uh, which having been used in trucks, uh, developed a sort of reputation for some mechanical problems like gelling at low temperatures and uh, clogging oil filters and whatnot, whereas these new generation of fuels are chemically similar and therefore, you know, theoretically, as well as realistically, as hopefully this test proves out, should um, operate just the same. So really, you know, it's it's more about proving the technology and, and getting the uh, getting the proper awareness of the fuel's capability sort of ingrained in major stakeholders is, is that yeah, kind definitely. of friendly? Yeah. yeah, definitely. Because it's, yeah, you know, okay. So, um, Pratt and Whitney, GE and Rolls Royce, I know all have, you know, they have their flying test beds. They have a, a, a 747 that they change the engines out and run that engine on different fuels and everything. They've been doing this for years where they'll, they'll, they'll put one of the jets underneath the in, uh, the wing of the aircraft and fly just that engine on hundred percent SAF. And it works perfectly. It's worked for a while. They've got, they've proven it that it'll burn properly in the engines. It provides the same amount of thrust. Everything is exactly the same, just 80% less emissions. Um, the biggest thing is the acceptance, hundred percent, especially, um, I, I was talking to my wife earlier about this and I said, you know, it's, you know, this is really cool. And she's like, well, do the passengers know? And, and I'm sure they, they, they will make an announcement saying, Hey, this engine's running on tap. Um, and, and, you know, yeah, it's a lot of people are going to be a little bit iffy on it when they find out that, yes, it's made out of used oils and greases that, that, you know, um, so yeah, there is, is a perception there Mm -hmm. that has to be overcome. However, you know, no matter how many times you prove it to people that it's working, that perception is still there that this aircraft is running on bacon grease. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess, uh, in addition to that, you know, after we've gotten over the awareness hump and, and people are more comfortable with the technology, um, you know, I'm wondering about what the local resource base is for these fuels, um, because I would assume that to, to make the economics work, you gotta you gotta concentrate those waste oil streams around your airport facilities. And I'm wondering, are are they taking waste oils? Well. I would imagine they're they're taking waste oils from research and development facilities and, and pilot plants, but in the future, would they be looking to to develop these resource bases at the airports using waste oils that are produced at the airports or near the airports? It, that would make the most sense. Yes, mm-hmm. um, what that what their plan is now, you know, that's well, that's their biggest thing that they're fighting with right now. A lot of these SAF producers is where do I get enough oil? to make this when you're looking at you know what is it 32 billion gallons of fuel a year is what they need to fly worldwide how do we come up with enough used cooking oil or anything or even when it comes down to okay well we need feedstock mm-hmm. you know as soon as you start taking all of that feedstock out of the economy um you know and, and possibly taking food away from people 
that's where we start to have a problem. So they have to make sure that that everything is sustainable, everything is um, easier to access, and and yes, with the fuels or the the oils and stuff, yes, you can definitely do it. But I don't think you're going to get enough um, used oil at an airport itself. Yeah. To to produce it, um, you know, if you look at you know, the larger airports, if you look at, you know, say Atlanta, which is the, the busiest airport in the world, you know, yeah. How many of those, uh, restaurants and stuff inside are you are going to have the oil that you can take? You, you need to mandate um, that, uh, airport restaurants serve nothing but, uh, French fries and bacon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There you go. Fried foods only. Nothing else but, <laughs> but deep fried foods. Uh, oh wait, donuts fit into that category. So we're good. Um, yeah, and then you have to look at, at okay, so can you use um, used motor oil? Well, then that goes back to that's petroleum-based again. So where do you get the oils from? That's the biggest, yeah. that's the kicker right now, and that's why SAF is so expensive, and that's why SAF is so rare is we have to come up with the, the right, uh, I guess, supply chain for it yeah. before we can make it cheaper. Yeah. In that capacity, I guess I just throw in a, a comment here. It, it seems like getting to 100% um, SAF blend is almost uh, irrelevant, important to prove the capability of the technology. But in, in the near term, it's it's not likely that SAF could ever displace 100% of, of jet fuel demand. So, at most, it might be able to be integrated into the, the supply chain, um, right. but only make up a, a percentage of theoretically every flight's fuel burn. Right. And, and to be honest with you, I, I don't ever see it becoming the 100% mm-hmm. for SAF because with the new technologies coming out, the electric aircraft coming out, you're going to have uh, it, it'll kind of balance itself out to that right point, because even if we get to uh, a 50, 50 blend across the board, everybody is using that 50, 50 blend. And we're only putting in 16 billion gallons mm-hmm. of fuel a year. Okay. I don't think we'll ever have to get that far because as soon as you start getting one electric aircraft into, into the mix, that's taking some of the fuel requirements out, yeah. you know, a thousand that takes a lot of, of the electric aircraft that takes even more of that out and so on and so forth. So that, those numbers will change now. Um, by 2050, they're also expecting uh, air, aircraft uh, transportation uh, by aircraft to go up by another. I think last one I saw was about 20 percent between now and 2050, mm-hmm. if not more. You know, um, with the pollution and everything expected in certain countries to go up 400 percent because of the 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 way the countries are, are working and, and they're um, it China is really bad on it, on, on um, their aviation is uh, let's see. I think aviation over there is 13% of their total mm-hmm. uh, pollution. Mm. So it's, it's higher than the world world's uh, world average. average. Yeah. So it's, it's, and, and they're expecting a large growth of, of passengers in the China area between now and 2050. So you're going to have more airplanes in the air. Um, a lot of them are going to be electric, but at the same time, you know, the SAF is going to be building itself in. But I don't see ever 
it being a hundred percent SAF yeah. in the air. Yeah, it's much like ground transportation where I think we've come to the realization that there isn't a single silver bullet solution that is going to replace gasoline and diesel for everything. Uh, it's it's going to be a mix of different things, some battery electric, maybe some hydrogen fuel cell and, and assorted other mm-hmm. solutions that combine to replace you know the kind of single solution that we've relied on for the past century. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a mix. All right. Uh, Ryan, what have you got? Yeah. Uh, so in the world of micromobility, um, interesting couple announcements from Kawasaki uh, a few days ago at the ICMA Milan Motorcycle Show. Um, they announced that they will be launching three electric motorcycles in 2022. Um, and it is somewhat significant news since none of the rest of the big four uh, Japanese motorcycle manufacturers, which would also include Honda, uh, Yamaha and Suzuki, uh, none of them have committed to bringing a full-size electric motorcycle to market by next year. Uh, a number of them, like Honda and Yamaha, have done electric scooters, but thus far have, have really stayed out of, of the full-size electric motorcycle market. Um, and Kawasaki also announced a couple weeks ago that, kind of following in the footsteps of GM on the uh, light-duty vehicle side, that its motorcycle offerings will be 100% electric by 2035. Um, they did stipulate, however, that's only in developed countries. So the markets they outlined were the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, and Japan, um, where they are offering products where they expect to be 100 percent electric by 2035. Um, you know, it's it's a pretty lofty goal because the motorcycle industry currently is is definitely trailing light duty vehicles uh, pretty substantially in, in terms of electrification. It's just really hard to, to physically pack enough batteries into a motorcycle considering how much smaller than a car they are, um, as well as combined with the fact that most motorcycle consumers want you know huge range, 250 miles plus on their vehicle. So it's just really hard to, to get that done. Uh, and, and considering Kawasaki, that's where it doesn't even have kind of a single production electric motorcycle offered and they sell you know close to half a million motorcycles per year with with significant customer base in north america you know it's definitely going to be pretty challenging to get to to 100 by 2035 there's you know going to be playing catch up with harley who's already had a production electric motorcycle for for a number of years and, and recently spun off a separate electric motorcycle company called livewire uh, Zero Motorcycles, who's the market leader in North America, has been offering products uh, for over 10 years and, and you know, pretty far ahead of the pack in terms of their uh, technology development. So, um, you know, it could be interesting. Kawasaki could potentially make more affordable electric motorcycles compared to a Zero due to their manufacturing capacity. But, you know, that's certainly not guaranteed. And, and you know, thus far, it's, it is a lot of announcements and hype we haven't seen the vehicles yet we'll, we'll see if they're compelling and, and what their specs look like you know will they have uh you know competitive prices and specs to a zero um will be really interesting to see and uh apparently they're also doing uh 10 new electric motorcycles by 2025 as part of this push as well so um again it could be a lot of hype and just sort of uh, announcements from them at the same time it is more substantial than anything we've seen from any of the other um, Japanese big four motorcycle manufacturers. So it will be kind of interesting to see how, how it plays out next year and what these models look like. My, my question there is, what do they consider the full-size motorcycles? Is that, you know, replacing 250, 250cc or above, 500cc or above? What's Yeah, I think it was about 250cc, something, you know, like highway-capable vehicles, not something that you would just 
you know, only can go on low speed limits. Um, and also body style is kind of what a lot of motorcycles are characterized by. Um, scooters typically, you know, that foot platform and mm -hmm. that whole thing. So it's, yeah, it's really about, you know, high speed, good size, good amount of power capable vehicle. So definitely not a scooter is I think the main, <laughs> the main idea to have, you know, a reasonable motorcycle out there. Um, again, you know, North America is a big market for them. So I'm sure you're familiar, Christian, with kind of some of the motorcycles they offer in North America. I was taking a look at some of them. So, um, you know, pretty, pretty high performance vehicles. Yeah. Be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be a challenge. Do you anticipate the other big four Japanese suppliers uh, following suit? Or do you think this is more like it's got to get proven out here and then based off of how it succeeds here, the others will, will adopt? Yeah, I mean, I think eventually they'll have to. They've been very slow thus far. Uh, Yamaha and Honda and, and Suzuki, there, there's no announced plans to, to do anything. So yeah, my guess is they would probably rather wait and see and take a cautious approach and see how it works for Kawasaki. There, there are some uh, talks and, and agreements going on between the four. They're actually collaborating on, uh, I believe it was a swappable e-motorcycle um, e battery standard for Japan. I'd have to double check on the status of that. But so they are trying to uh, cooperate together and because they, I think, have acknowledged that this is where the industry will go eventually. Uh, you know, there's some cities in Asia Pacific that are going to be banning gas motorcycles because of the pollution problems. Um, I think it was Hanoi uh, that's announced that. So they know that this is where it's going. So that I think they will follow suit eventually. But to, to me, it looks like they're definitely taking a, a wait and see and, and cautious approach and kind of waiting probably as long as they can before they have to start doing it. And, and I think what they're probably waiting for is similar to, um, you know, especially the heavy duty EV market, you know, a, a breakthrough in, in battery energy density, I think is kind of needed to make electric motorcycles work for a lot of consumers who want um, a really strong range provided at a price that's relatively the same as a gas motorcycle. Whereas now just to get that range, the prices are just way too high uh, on electric motorcycles. If uh, if you had a swapping network, could that overcome that density challenge, or is it a little bit infeasible to even consider a swapping network? Yeah, swapping for electric motorcycles is pretty interesting because you know it can work for scooters and that the batteries aren't that heavy, but motorcycles would have much heavier batteries, so I'm not sure uh, that consumers would be able to lift them. And in fact, I, as far as I understand in my conversations with uh, Zero, uh, they're not really, you know, it's, it's not really practical for, for someone to do it. I, again, I have to double check the exact number, but I think it's something like 35 pounds for a battery, 40 pounds for a battery. You know, it's, it's, or maybe it's 43. It, you know, it's starting to get pretty heavy. And, you know, there might be some people who just doesn't really make sense to be trying to lug that in and out of their vehicle and moving it to you know, somebody could drop that on their foot or something. So yeah, for motorcycles, they might need some sort of automation equipment to do swapping, at least for, you know, longer range, higher power ones. So I, I see that as a big challenge. I know, I know for scooters, it's worked really well because, you know, eight pounds, you, you, anyone can, can uh, take them out and swap them. Uh, you start getting 40 plus pounds per battery. You start kind of limiting how, how accessible it is for people. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Hey, Ryan, um, what are your thoughts on um, why you think uh, consumers need to have such range on 
e-motorcycles? Yeah, it's just to do with the, the typical kind of consumer that buys motorcycles, particularly in the States. Uh, there's just that kind of uh, highway driving. Um, I mean, Christian could probably answer that really well. Christian, there's just kind of that, you know, freedom of the road and you're, you're taking long distance touring. It's not really meant for like you're commuting around the city, right? There's just a different kind of use case and uh, for those vehicles mm. and consumers. Much like yeah, with cars. Yeah. Mm. Your, your larger bikes like that, you know, weekends you get together with your friends and you go for a ride and it's a 200 to 250 mile ride that you go on. In, in the afternoon and, you know, we'll, we'll ride up, up and find a place and have lunch and then turn around and ride back type thing. Um, so you want the range there. Yeah. Um, and there's the multi-day my question, though, on, on long trips. And, yeah. I would yeah. argue that the motorcycle consumer ha- have like more of that open road mindset. Whereas I don't think the average person with a car is just kind of driving for fun, hundreds and hundreds of miles, you know, for a weekend, experience yeah. yeah speak for yourself and <laughs> you do that <laughs> yeah there are people that do that um my question is on the on the batteries if you've got a say a 45 pound battery in this thing um and the swapping the reason i think the swapping would be a little harder is you have to place it in the right spot on the motorcycle so it doesn't you don't lose your your center of balance on the bike so that that might lead into the problem with the swapping is it has to be in the right spot for the weight and balance of that bike. Yeah, it don't have to be easy to, to get it in and out. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott, your turn. All right. Yeah, so as per usual, there's another uh, development in battery swapping, uh, but this one is is a little more interesting than past weeks in that um, it involves Shell, uh, which also has uh, been an interesting player in the EV charging space. Um, and I'll, I'll start with Shell, because in, in 2017, uh, they bought up one of, uh, one of the leading EV charging network developers called New Motion in Europe. And then in 2019, they uh, did the same thing to a North American EV charging network developer called Greenlots. And both of these companies are, are solution providers to, um, to charge point operators. They both provide software solutions. And in New Motion's case, they also um, help design a, a hardware solution and deliver that hardware solution to operators. Now, uh, that's important in, in, in a sense in that it, it uh, demonstrates Shell's interest in the space. As of the beginning of November, Shell announced that going into 2022, they're going to rebrand both Greenlots and New Motion, uh, which have maintained their own brands um, under this uh, last two to four years of ownership by Shell into shell recharge solutions. Uh, So that's going to be combining the businesses and making one of the biggest uh, charge point uh, network solution providers uh, on the global stage, uh, which which is a development in and of itself. Where battery swapping comes in is that um, just uh, over the Thanksgiving week, Shell announced that they would be collaborating with NEO uh, in developing battery swap stations in China. Uh, co-branded swap stations in China as well as in Europe. 
the co-branding uh, in China will uh, will begin uh, in 2022, and they're hoping to to reach about 100 sites for battery swapping by 2025, um, where Shell is planning to develop EV charging hubs uh, next to their uh, re- recharge fast chargers, which are deployed at their uh, retail fueling sites. Uh, in Europe, the collaboration will begin in 2022 and scale, you know, depending on how successful battery swapping uh, specifically through NEO's vehicles, um, uh, will be uh, in Europe because it's a, it's a fairly untested um, uh, frontier for battery swapping still. Um, <clears throat> but the other interesting note of that is that the, um, uh, the swapping networks will also be integrated into uh, the Shell Recharge Solutions family in terms of that network solution being applied to those battery swap stations. So uh, the way I look at it is there's a lot of uh, interesting things that network providers or these network solution providers like New Motion and Greenlots can bring to battery swapping in terms of software solutions uh, that would uh, optimize the way these battery swap stations are operated. So for instance, being able to integrate uh, the charging of those batteries with local um, local loads, local grids, uh, the capabilities to monitor battery health um, and transition batteries in and out of service depending on battery health. So there's there's a lot of interesting opportunities uh, in it and it puts shell in this sort of leadership position uh, within the EV charging market, which is one of the fastest growing markets in the EMU, in, in the transportation sector right now. When you, you mentioned integration you know, with the other services, would that also potentially <clears throat> include integration? Uh, for example, you know, you've got Green Lots that's operating, um, you know, the charge stations, uh, or I forget the the company that they acquired that Shell acquired in in, uh, in Europe. Uh, but you know, one of the challenges for consumers is juggling accounts for multiple different charging networks uh, and figuring out which ones to. You know which one you need when you go to a particular charging station, or in this case, a swap station. Uh, some OEMs are trying to deal with that by aggregating multiple networks through their own uh, in-vehicle um, app, uh, like Ford and, and GM, and I think Mercedes-Benz is doing this as well. Um, but do you see <clears throat> Shell uh, integrating the the swapping and? charging services through a single interface as well uh, for payments and, and authentication and so on? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, especially in Europe where there are just so many different networks in operation. I think part of the attractiveness for Neo of collaborating with Shell is that it is syncing up with one of the largest networks that already exists in Europe. Um, so that its drivers will not only be able to source from the NEO swap stations, but also from the development that Shell has been putting into its own network that's also enhanced by new motions capabilities. Uh, so when it, when it comes to that, that capability, I would say that Shell is not really doing anything uh, vastly different than a number of the other network operators in Europe. But it's 
what it brings to the table is more so uh, an extensive charge point network that can be attached to the battery swapping capabilities Neo already presents. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, you know, another, um, you know, challenge with swapping, uh, you know, is incompatibility of batteries across different brands, different vehicles. Um, do you think it's possible that with a partnership with a company like Shell and the scale that they have, that perhaps Shell might be, uh, you know, if they, if they go to OEMs and say, look, we're working with Neo to integrate their battery swap capabilities, you know, could they p- perhaps go to o- other automakers and say, you know, if you were to adopt the same battery pack format, you know, then we could also support you and give you that option for swapping in addition to uh, or as a complement to charging capabilities. Is that something you think that Shell might do? Yeah, yeah, I think I think there's potential there. Um Probably it's going to be harder to to bring that to automakers who are leaders in the EV space but haven't really developed anything on battery swapping yet. I would say that's going to be more attractive to the automakers who have been later to the game on e-mobility and would want to uh, approach the market licensing a technology or um, not making the huge investments in e-mobility that some of the other leaders have. Uh, standardization of batteries, I think, from uh, the, the vast number of leaders in the EV market is going to be um, a difficult pill to swallow. Um, there's probably going to be uh, a lot of different battery standardization um, uh, approaches uh, you see that in, in China with a few different battery swapping approaches and third-party battery swap operators are coming in into, into the scene, much in the same way that Shell might come into the scene and provide that option of battery standardization to um, an automaker who is less further along EV adoption. So, yeah, I do see that possibility. Um but it's but I see it as being something more for those automakers who just haven't haven't gotten there yet. Okay. All right. Anything else from the rest of you? All right. Well, I will wrap it up then with uh, some information on what's going on with chips. Uh, the, the chip shortage has obviously been huge news this year, and it's uh, projected that um, global vehicle production might be impacted uh, the, over the course of 2021 uh, by somewhere between 10 and 15 percent, um, 10 and 15 percent reduction in global vehicle production, just because manufacturers can't get enough chips for the vehicles that they want to build for the, you know, and they can't, and hence they can't meet the demand from consumers from the market for vehicles. Um, and manufacturers are taking a variety of different approaches to try to address this problem. Obviously, you know, with uh, changes in the economy, um, you know, with a lot more adoption of electronic devices, there's a lot more global demand for semiconductors in pretty much everything we use. And that's only going to continue increasing over the coming years, especially in automotive, as we add more and more uh, features, uh, driver assist, uh, automated driving, electrification, that is going to um, 
drive more <clears throat> more adoption of electronic systems in vehicles. And so uh, companies have been scrambling, trying to find a way around this. Some manufacturers, uh, like Toyota, for example, um, had managed prior to the, the shortage be earlier, the, the beginning of this year, to stockpile a lot of chips that they that they knew they were going to, going to need, and they've managed to maintain most of their production this year. Um, others, like Tesla, um, have been making rapid shifts. You know, they, they the way that they operate, they're <laughs> they're very willing to make uh, quick, you know, on the fly changes to their vehicles, and so they have swapped out some components that they were previously using for other chips that were more readily available. Uh, the challenge there, of course, is you often, that means you often have to rewrite a lot of software and revalidate things. Um, Tesla is known for not necessarily being the most um, stringent when it comes to validating their products. Um, and so they've been willing to take that risk. Um, but uh, in the last week or so, we've seen uh, both GM and Ford make some interesting moves. Uh, Ford announced an agreement last week with Global Foundries, which is uh, a chip fabrication company that were spun out from AMD about uh, eight or nine years ago. Uh, and they're going to be working with Global Foundries uh, to uh, put in more capacity. Basically, they're, they're trying to... Um, pre-buy chips uh, and make sure that they have enough dedicated capacity for the chips that they need going forward. And the, the traditional approach in the auto industry is that manufacturers buy features from their suppliers, from companies like Bosch and Continental and ZF and, and others. Uh, and the, you know, so they'll buy something like an electronic stability control system or some other ADAS feature. Uh, and that will come with uh, the various sensors and actuators and other components that are required. Uh, and also uh, an ECU, an electronic control unit with a chip and software in there. Um, and the, the supplier is the one that sources those chips and, and puts it into the ECU and supplies it to the automaker. What Ford and Global Foundries plan to do is Ford wants to buy, source the chips directly from Global Foundries and then <clears throat> direct them to their various suppliers. Uh, and this is similar to what we've seen happening on the battery side over the last couple of years where a number of automakers, uh, you know, in it you know, in trying to make sure that they can get enough battery supply have been doing direct supply deals with raw material providers for things like nickel and cobalt and aluminum uh, and manganese. And then buying, buying the, the, the raw materials and then providing that to whichever battery supplier was going to, uh, they selected to supply the batteries. They're, Ford is do, doing, looks like they're doing the same thing with global foundries with their chips, and they will supply the chips to whoever they select to provide the features or the ECUs for their vehicles. Um, GM is taking a slightly different approach. Um, they, uh, they, they, Mark Royce, the uh, president of General Motors, uh, told an investor conference last week that the company is working with seven different chip suppliers on new families of microcontrollers um, that will, uh, with the goal of reducing the number of unique chips uh, in future vehicles. And again, this goes back to the way that the electronic systems and vehicles have evolved over the last almost 50 years now since we first started putting electronics in vehicles in the early 1970s, where we've had a, a piecemeal development approach uh, where, as I mentioned, you know, each feature comes with its own ECU, its own chip, uh, and its own software. 
and so now we have vehicles that in some cases have upwards of 100 discrete electronic control units, 100 discrete computers scattered around the vehicle. Um, what uh, GM wants to do is, is go down the path that we've seen other automakers start to do with consolidating these. And instead of having all these unique components in there, many of which are older generation chips, uh, which has been part of the problem with the shortage this year, is it's primarily been with older generation chips. They're migrating towards newer generation, higher performance chips and consolidating you know, multiple ECUs down to single or fewer larger, more powerful ECUs and doing, doing virtualization in there to run all the different functions. Uh, and so, you know, instead of having a hundred ECUs, you might have eight, five to 10 major ECUs and there's maybe a couple of, a few smaller controllers in there. Uh, and so they're working with their chip vendors, um, and including Qualcomm, uh, ST Micro, uh, Renaissance, NXP, Infineon, and, and on semiconductor, um, to, get to source these more powerful chips. And in fact, uh, as we're recording this today, later today um, uh, at a Qualcomm event, um, GM will be announcing that they're uh, using Qualcomm's new Snapdragon ride platform uh, starting in 2022 for uh, a number of new vehicles for their, uh, their driver assist systems and their infotainment systems. Uh, so they're starting that process of consolidating the electronics and going to these modern electronic architectures on their vehicles. Uh, and hopefully that will make them a little more uh, resilient to future supply shortages. So do you see... Would you characterize um, what Ford is doing as kind of a, a, a Band-Aid to the existing problem and GM is is sort of setting itself up for, for the future? And in that capacity, would GM be setting the example of what, what it's going to look like? Uh, not necessarily, because Ford has already started down that process of you know, moving towards this more modern architecture, electronic architecture. Um, some of their, their, their newest vehicles, the, the Mustang Mach-E, the current generation F-150, uh, the new Bronco and and others that are coming in 2022 and beyond already have moved towards starting that process of consolidation. And I think that that will continue. Um, you know, and in that, you know, they, they design their electronic architecture with fewer computers. Uh, and um, now they're, they're kind of going the next step of selecting a single uh, or working with a single vendor that will actually fabricate the silicon uh, for them, you know, and then they will pro provide that to the, the various suppliers that provide those computers, those larger computers. So in a way, they're both kind of doing the same thing. They're kind of coming at it from different directions, but I think they'll both end up in, in roughly the same place, as will most automakers. Most, most automakers are moving in this direction of consolidated uh, electronics. Uh, Volvo earlier this year, announced what they're doing next year with the, the next generation of the XC90, uh, starting with that vehicle, which is also uh, moving towards a more centralized compute architecture. Uh, they're using NVIDIA's Orin uh, chipset for that. Um, and a lot of Chinese automakers are also moving in this direction. So I think we'll, we'll see the pretty much everybody in the industry over the next five to 10 years move in this direction, not all necessarily at the same pace, though. Yeah. 
In in terms of consolidation, uh, is it that the focus areas of consolidation are more so those uh, feature sets of of the vehicle or associated with feature sets of the vehicle that are now more more standardized um, across and among vehicles, uh, whereas um, those areas for like vehicle automation. Um, are going to be still a little more difficult to consolidate, or is does that not really matter? Uh, no, it, it matters somewhat. Um, so you know, a lot of things you know have become commoditized. You know, things like electronic stability control, which is pretty much universally uh, included now, and in, uh, at least in, in uh, developed markets uh, on on almost all new vehicles. Um, you know, and they have become ro- more or less standardized. Um, I think. You know what we're seeing though is more of a shift, and this you know goes for the automated driving as well, is the shift towards away from you know the black box approach where an, an automaker would buy a system, buy a subsystem from a supplier, and they get a black box, the computer, you know, and they have no visibility really into the software that's running in that ECU. It's you know they they get it from the supplier, they put it on the vehicle, and that's that's it. What they're doing now is with taking more control of the compute hardware platform, um, they're setting it up in such a way that the supplier can still supply the software, but now it goes, the software, instead of providing an ECU, the supplier will just provide the software that has to run on a platform that the OEM defines and they, the OEM will do that integration of it along with all of the other subs, the software from all the other subsystems. Uh, so instead of each subsystem having its own computer, they'll run on, you'll have multiple subsystems running on a single computer. And as we move in towards more automated driving, that's another application that will be running on those, on those computers. All right. How do you see, Sam, the uh, transition to EVs impacting the, the chip shortage? Um, you know, I've seen different uh, statistics on this, but I did see something from Infineon that looks like there's about twice as much in terms of cost for, for semiconductor content in every EV versus a ICE vehicle. So how do you see the shift to, to EVs kind of further complicating the need for chips? Um it may not be as bad as it sounds because while the semiconductor content will increase, um, you know, because the EVs are new, they're not necessarily using a lot of the legacy systems. They're not carrying over a lot of the legacy systems from internal combustion powertrains. And, you know, those are areas where you often have older generation chipsets uh, that are running in there. Uh, that are less, maybe less readily available. They're running on larger process nodes, so the the circuitry on the chip is, uh, you know, if you if you were to to look at it, you know, they, they define it in in terms of the nanometer size of the transistors on the chip, and a lot of what you find in legacy platforms is, you know, things like twenty eight to as much as ninety nanometer process nodes on those chips. These are these are older generation production processes that, you know, date back you know, 20 years, uh, 15 or 20 years. Um, what you're, what you're finding, what you're going to have as we move to EVs is they're moving to more state of the art, um, silicon that is running on four or five nanometer processes. So much smaller process nodes 
They're much, the chips are, have much higher density of transistors on there. And so, for example, I mentioned GM and, and Qualcomm. You know, they're moving to Snapdragon Ride, which is on a five five nanometer process. This is similar. This is you know, kind of the state of the art stuff, similar to what you'll find in your latest smartphones and laptop computers and and everything else. Very you know, very state of the art technology as opposed to older generation technology. So I think it'll actually be easier in some respects by making this jump to more modern electronic systems. Um, And because they're uh, consolidating this, and and a key part of this is abstracting the hardware away from the software. Uh, So you've got this, what we call a middleware layer. Um, You can have the applications that are written to the middleware layer and then if you do have a shortage of one kind of chip uh, and you need to switch to another kind of chip, it's easier to do it when you have that abstraction layer in there. Because now, the traditionally, the software in these things, and I know this from my own background uh, working on electronic control systems and vehicles, you know, a lot of the, the software was written directly to the hardware. You know, it, was very, it was very hardware-specific code. Um, and in many cases, it often used assembly code that could, you know, literally to move it to another kind of chip, you had to completely rewrite and re-architect the whole software stack. Now you don't have to do that. It's, it's more like uh, a great example is uh, Apple uh, on their computers last year started making a transition from Intel x86 chips to their own internally designed ARM-based chipsets. And they were able to make that transition very seamlessly because in their operating system, they had that abstraction layer that did the translation. And now you only have to change one piece of the software, that abstraction layer, to go from one, one type of hardware to another type. So it, will, it should actually simplify the process going forward. Interesting. All right, anything else? Or should we wrap it up for this week? Sounds like that's it. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you all next time.